Chapter 20 The Letter and the Spirit We come now to the beginning of another new section. To understand the real import of this sermon, it is essential that we should understand the precise connection between what our Lord begins to say at verse 21 and what has gone before. And of course, it is a very direct connection. The danger in dealing with a part of Scripture such as this is that we shall become so immersed in a consideration of the details that we miss the essential teaching and the great principles which our Lord was enunciating. It will be good for us, therefore, to remind ourselves again of the general outline of the sermon so that every part will be seen in relationship to the whole. Our Lord is concerned to describe the citizens of the kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. First and foremost, he gives us in the Beatitudes a general description of the essential nature of the Christian man. Then he goes on to tell us about the function and the purpose of the Christian in this life and world. Then we have seen that that brings him immediately to this whole question of the relationship of such a person to the law. It was essential that he should do that because the people to whom he was preaching were Jews who had been taught the law, and obviously they would evaluate any new teaching in terms of the law. So he had to show them the relationship of himself and his teachings to the law, and he does that in verses 17 through 20, summing it up in the vital statement which we have just been studying. Now here, at verse 21, he proceeds to expand that statement. He expounds the relationship of the Christian to the law in two respects. He gives us his own positive exposition of the law, and he also contrasts it with the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Indeed, there is a sense in which it can be said that the whole of the remainder of this sermon, from verse 21 right through to the end of chapter 7, is nothing but an elaboration of that fundamental proposition that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we are indeed to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is something which our Lord does in a most interesting manner. Looking at it broadly, we can say that in the remainder of chapter 5, he is concerned to do this in terms of a true exposition of the law over against the false exposition of the Pharisees and the scribes. His main concern in chapter 6 is to show the true nature of fellowship with God, again in contradistinction to the Pharisaical teaching and practice. Then in chapter 7, he is concerned to show true righteousness as it views itself and others once more contrasted with what was taught and practiced by the Pharisees and the scribes. That is the essential analysis of the teaching which we must try to hold in our minds. In verse 21 through 48, then, our Lord is concerned mainly to give a true account of the law. He does this by putting forward a series of six particular statements, and we should look at these very carefully. The first is in verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. The next comes in verse 27 where he says again, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Then in verse 31 we read, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. The next is in verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Then in verse 38 we read, 
Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And the last is in verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. It is most important before we come to deal with each of these statements separately and in particular that we should consider them together as a whole because if you look at them, you will see at once that there are certain principles which are common to all six. Indeed, I do not hesitate to suggest that our Lord was really more concerned about these common principles than he was about the particulars. In other words, he lays down certain principles and then illustrates them. Obviously, therefore, we must make certain that we really grasp the principles first. The first thing we must consider is the formula which he uses. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. There is a slight variation in the form here and there, but that, essentially, is the way in which he introduces these six statements. We must be perfectly clear about this. You will find that certain translations put it like this. Ye have heard it was said to them of old time. On purely linguistic grounds, no one can tell whether it was by or to, for, as usual, when you come to matters of linguistics, you find the authorities are divided and you cannot be sure. Only a consideration of the context, therefore, can help us to determine exactly what our Lord meant to convey by this. Is he referring simply to the law of Moses, or is he referring to the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes? Those who would say it should read to them of old time obviously must say that he is referring to the law of Moses given to the fathers. Whereas those who would emphasize the by, as we have it in the authorized version, would say that it has reference to what was taught by the scribes and Pharisees. It seems to me that certain considerations make it almost essential for us to take the second view and to hold that what our Lord is really doing here is showing the true teaching of the law over against the false representations of it made by the Pharisees and the scribes. You remember that one of the great characteristics of their teaching was the significance which they attached to tradition. They were always quoting the fathers. That is what made the scribe a scribe. He was an authority on the pronouncements which had been made by the fathers. These had become the tradition. I suggest, therefore, that the verses must be interpreted in that way. Indeed, the wording used by our Lord more or less clinches the matter. He says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. He does not say, You have read in the law of Moses, or it was written and you have read. That is significant in this way. Perhaps we can best show it by means of an illustration. The condition of the Jews in our Lord's day was remarkably like that of people in this country before the Protestant Reformation. You remember that in those days the scriptures were not translated into English, but were read Sunday by Sunday in Latin and to people who did not understand Latin. The result was that the people were entirely dependent for their knowledge of the scriptures upon the priests who read the Bible to them and who claimed to be expounding it. They were unable to read the scriptures for themselves and to verify and confirm that which they were hearing from the various pulpits on Sundays and weekdays. What the Protestant Reformation did, in a sense, was to give the Bible to the people. It enabled them to read the scriptures for themselves and to see the false teaching and the false representations of the gospel which had been given to them. Now, the position when our Lord was speaking here was very similar to that. 
The children of Israel during their captivity in Babylon had ceased to know the Hebrew language. Their language when they came back, and at this time, was Aramaic. They were not familiar with Hebrew, so they could not read the Law of Moses as they had it in their own Hebrew scriptures. The result was that they were dependent for any knowledge of the Law upon the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. Our Lord therefore very rightly said, Ye have heard, or that is what you have been hearing, that is what has been said to you, that is the preaching that has been given to you as you have gone to your synagogues and listened to the instruction. The result was that what these people thought of as the law was in reality not the law itself, but a representation of it given by the scribes and Pharisees. In particular, it consisted of the various interpretations and traditions which had been added to the law during the centuries, and thus it was essential that these people should be given a true account of what the law really did say and teach. The Pharisees and scribes had added their own interpretations to it, and it was almost impossible at this time to tell which was law and which was interpretation. Again, the analogy of what happened in this country before the Reformation will help us to see the exact position. The Roman Catholic teaching before the Protestant Reformation was a false representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It said you had to believe in the sacraments to be saved, and that apart from the church and priesthood, there was no salvation. That was how salvation was being taught. Tradition and various additions had beclouded the simple gospel. Our Lord's object, as I think we shall see as we work through these examples, was to show exactly what had been happening to the law of Moses as the result of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. So he is concerned to make clear to them exactly what the law has to say. That is the first principle which we must hold in mind. Then we must also consider this other extraordinary statement, I say unto you. This is, of course, one of the most crucial statements with regard to the doctrine of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he does not hesitate here to set himself up as the authority. Obviously, also, it has real significance with regard to the previous statement. If you take the view that by them of old time means just the law of Moses, then you are more or less forced into the position of believing that our Lord was saying, the law of Moses said... But I say, which suggests that he was correcting the law of Moses. But that is not so. He is saying rather, I am interpreting to you the law of Moses, and it is my interpretation that is true, and not that of the Pharisees and scribes. Indeed, there is even more than that in it. There is a suggestion that he is saying something like this, I, who am speaking to you, am the very one who was responsible for the law of Moses, it was I who gave it to Moses, and it is I alone, therefore, who can truly interpret it. You see, he does not hesitate here to claim for himself a unique authority. He claims to speak as God. Regarding the law of Moses, as he does, as something which shall not pass away until every jot and tittle has been fulfilled, he does not hesitate, nevertheless, to say, But I say unto you, he claims the authority of God. And that, of course, is the claim which is made for him everywhere in the four Gospels and in the entire New Testament. It is vitally important, therefore, that we should realize the authority 
with which these words come to us. He was not a mere teacher. He was not a mere man. He was not a mere expounder of the law or just another scribe or Pharisee or prophet. He was infinitely more than that. He was God the Son in the flesh presenting the truth of God. We might very well spend much time considering this great phrase, but I trust that we are all clear and all agreed about that. Everything we have in this Sermon on the Mount must be accepted as coming from the Son of God Himself. So we are confronted with the stupendous fact that here in this world of time, the very Son of God has been amongst us. And though He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, He still speaks with this divine authority, and His every word is of crucial importance to us. That leads us on to the consideration of what He actually said. Here it is important that we should consider the statement as a whole before looking at the particular injunctions in detail. Let us once and for all get rid of the idea that our Lord came to set up a new law or to announce a new code of ethics. As we consider the detailed statements, we shall find that many people have dropped into that error. There are those who do not believe in the unique deity of the Lord Jesus Christ or in His atonement, and who do not worship Him as the Lord of glory, but who say that they are great believers in the Sermon on the Mount because they find there a code of ethics for this life and world. That, they say, is how life should be lived. I am therefore emphasizing the principles in order that we may see that to look at the sermon in that way is to nullify its real purpose. It is not meant to be a detailed code of ethics. It is not a new kind of moral law which was given by him. It was probably thought of in that way in his own day, so he constantly said something like this, I have come to found a new kingdom. I am the first of a new race of people the firstborn among many brethren, and the people of whom I am head will be of a certain type and character, people who, because they conform to that description, are going to behave in a certain manner. Now I want to give you some illustrations of how they are going to behave. That is what our Lord is saying, and that is why He is concerned about the principles rather than the detailed examples. So if we take the illustrations and turn them into a law, we are denying the very thing he was setting out to do. Now, it is characteristic of human nature that we always prefer to have things cut and dried rather than have them in the form of principles. That is why certain forms of religion are always popular. The natural man likes to be given a definite list. Then he feels that, as long as he conforms to the things stated in the list, all will be well. But that is not possible with the gospel. That is not possible at all in the kingdom of God. That was partly the position under the old dispensation, and even there it was carried too far by the Pharisees and scribes. But it is not at all like that under the New Testament dispensation. However, we still tend to like this sort of thing. It is very much easier, is it not, to think of holiness in terms of observing Lent for six weeks or so during the year, rather than to be living with a principle which demands and insists upon application day by day. We always like to have a set of routine rules and regulations. That is why I am pressing this point. If you take the Sermon on the Mount with these six detailed statements and say, 
as long as I do not commit adultery and so on, I am all right, you've entirely missed our Lord's point. It is not a code of ethics. He is out to delineate a certain order and quality of life, and he says, in effect, look, I am illustrating this kind of life. It means this type of behavior. So we must hold on to the principle without turning the particular illustration into a law. Let me put it again in this form. Any man in the ministry has to spend a good deal of his time answering the questions of people who come and want him to make particular pronouncements upon particular questions. There are certain problems which face us all in life, and there are people who always seem to want some kind of detailed statement so that when they are confronted by any particular problem, all they have to do is to turn up their textbook and there they find the answer. The Catholic types of religion are prepared to meet such people. The casuists of the Middle Ages, whom we've already mentioned, those so-called doctors of the church had thought out and discussed together the various moral and ethical problems likely to confront Christian people in this world, and they codified them and drew up their rules and regulations. When you were faced with a difficulty, you immediately turned up your authority and found the appropriate answer. There are people who are always anxious for something like that in the spiritual realm. The final answer to them in terms of this sermon can be put in this form. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not treat us like that. It does not treat us as children. It is not another law, but something which gives us life. It lays down certain principles and asks us to apply them. Its essential teaching is that we are given a new outlook and understanding which we must apply with respect to every detail of our lives. That is why the Christian, in a sense, is a man who is always walking on a kind of knife edge. He has no set regulations. Indeed, he applies this central principle to every situation that may arise. All this must be said in order to emphasize this point. If we take these six statements made by our Lord in terms of the formula, Ye have heard, and I say unto you, we shall find that the principle he uses is exactly the same in each case. In one he is dealing with sex morality, in the next with murder, and in the next with divorce. But every single time the principle is the same. Our Lord as a great teacher knew the importance of illustrating a principle. So here he gives six illustrations of the one truth. Let us now deal with this common principle which is to be found in the six, so that when we come to work each one out, we shall always be holding the central principle in our minds. Our Lord's chief desire was to show the true meaning and intent of the law and to correct the erroneous conclusions which had been drawn from it by the Pharisees and scribes and all the false notions which they had founded upon it. These, I suggest, are the principles. First, it is the spirit of the law that matters primarily, not the letter only. The law was not meant to be mechanical, but living. The whole trouble with the Pharisees and the scribes was that they concentrated only on the letter, and they did so to the exclusion of the spirit. It is a great subject, this relationship between form and content. Spirit is always something that must be embodied in form, and that is where the difficulty arises. Man will ever concentrate on the form rather than on the content, upon the letter rather than upon the spirit. You remember that the Apostle Paul stresses this in 2 Corinthians where he says, The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. 
And his whole emphasis in that chapter is that Israel was so constantly thinking of the letter that they lost the Spirit. The whole purpose of the letter is to give body to the Spirit, and the Spirit is the thing that really matters, not the mere letter. Take, for example, this question of murder. As long as the Pharisees and scribes did not actually murder a man, they thought they had kept the law perfectly. But they were missing the whole point and spirit of the law, which is not merely that I should literally not commit murder, but that my attitude towards my fellow men should be a right and loving one. Likewise, with all these other illustrations, the mere fact that you do not commit adultery in an actual physical sense does not mean that you have kept the law. What is your spirit? What is your desire as you look and so on? It is the spirit, not the letter, that counts. It is clear then that if we rely only upon the letter, we shall completely misunderstand the law. Let me emphasize that this applies not only to the law of Moses, but still more in a sense to this very Sermon on the Mount. There are people today who so look at the letter of the Sermon on the Mount as to miss its spirit. When we come to details, we shall see that in practice. Take, for instance, the attitude of the Quakers with regard to taking the oath. They have taken the letter here literally, and it seems to me have not only denied the Spirit, but have even made our Lord's statement almost ridiculous. There are people who do exactly the same with turning the other cheek and giving to those who ask gifts of us, bringing the whole teaching into ridicule because they are constantly living on the letter, whereas our Lord's whole emphasis was upon the primary importance of the Spirit. That does not mean, of course, that the letter does not matter, but it does mean that we must put the Spirit before it and interpret the letter according to the Spirit. Now take a second principle, which is really another way of putting the first. Conformity to the law must not be thought of in terms of actions only. Thoughts, motives, and desires are equally important. The law of God is concerned as much with what leads to the action as it is with the action itself. Again, it does not mean that the action does not matter, but it does mean very definitely that it is not the action only that is important. This should be an obvious principle. The scribes and Pharisees were concerned only about the act of adultery or the act of murder. But our Lord was at pains to emphasize to them that it is the desire in man's heart and mind to do these things that is really and ultimately reprehensible in the sight of God. How often he said in this connection that it is out of the heart that evil thoughts and actions come. It is the heart of man that matters. So we must not think of this law of God and of pleasing God merely in terms of what we do or do not do. It is the inward condition and attitude that God is always observing. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Luke 16.15 The next principle we can put in this form. The law must be thought of not only in a negative manner, but also positively. The ultimate purpose of the law is not merely to prevent our doing certain things that are wrong. Its real object is to lead us positively, not only to do that which is right, but also to love it. 
Here again is something which comes out clearly in these six illustrations. The whole Jewish conception of the law was a negative one. I must not commit adultery, I must not commit murder, and so on. But our Lord emphasizes all along that what God is really concerned about is that we should be lovers of righteousness. We should be hungering and thirsting after righteousness, not merely negatively avoiding that which is evil. It is surely unnecessary that I should turn aside to show the practical relevance of each one of these points to our present condition. Alas, there are still people who seem to think of holiness and sanctification in this purely mechanical manner. They think that as long as they are not guilty of drinking, gambling, or going to theaters and cinemas, all is well. Their attitude is purely negative. It does not seem to matter if you are jealous, envious, and spiteful. The fact that you are full of the pride of life seems to be of no account as long as you do not do certain things. That was the whole trouble with the scribes and Pharisees who perverted the law of God by regarding it purely in a negative manner. The fourth principle is that the purpose of the law as expounded by Christ is not to keep us in a state of obedience to oppressive rules, but to promote the free development of our spiritual character. This is vitally important. We must not think of the holy life, the way of sanctification, as something hard and grievous which puts us into a state of servitude. Not at all. The glorious possibility that is offered us by the gospel of Christ is development as children of God and growing under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. His commandments, says John in his first epistle, are not grievous. So if you and I regard the ethical teaching of the New Testament as something that cramps us, if we think of it as something narrow and restrictive, it means we have never understood it. The whole purpose of the gospel is to bring us into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And these special injunctions are simply particular illustrations of how we may arrive at that and enjoy it. That, in turn, brings us to the fifth principle, which is that the law of God and all these ethical instructions of the Bible must never be regarded as an end in themselves. We must never think of them as something to which we just have to try to conform. The ultimate objective of all this teaching is that you and I might come to know God. Now these Pharisees and scribes, and the Apostle Paul said it was true of him too before he was truly converted, put, as it were, the Ten Commandments and the Moral Law on the wall and having viewed them in this negative, restricted manner, said, Well, now, I'm not guilty of these various things. Therefore, I am all right. I am righteous, and all is well between me and God. You see, they viewed the law as something in and of itself. They codified it in this way, and as long as they kept to that code, they said all was well. According to our Lord, that is an utterly fallacious view of the law. The one test which you must always apply to yourself is this. What is my relationship to God? Do I know Him? Am I pleasing Him? In other words, as you examine yourself before you go to bed, you do not just ask yourself if you have committed murder or adultery, or whether you have been guilty of this or that, and if you have not, thank God that all is well. No. You ask yourself, rather, has God been supreme in my life today? Have I lived to the glory and the honor of God? Do I know Him better? Have I a zeal for His honor and glory? Has there been anything in me that has been unlike Christ? Thoughts, imaginations, desires, impulses? 
That is the way. In other words, you examine yourself in the light of a living person and not merely in terms of a mechanical code of rules and regulations. And as the law must not be thought of as an end in itself, neither must the Sermon on the Mount. These are simply agencies which are meant to bring us into that true and living relationship with God. We must always be very careful, therefore, lest we do with the Sermon on the Mount what the Pharisees and the scribes had been doing with the old moral law. These six examples, chosen by our Lord, are nothing but illustrations of principles. It is the spirit, not the letter, that matters. It is the intent, object, and purpose that are important. The one thing we have to avoid above everything else in our Christian lives is this fatal tendency to live the Christian life apart from a direct living and true relationship to God. Finally, we can illustrate it like this. Discipline in the Christian life is a good and essential thing. But if your main object and intent is to conform to the discipline that you have set for yourself, it may very well be the greatest danger to your soul. Fasting and prayer are good things, but if you fast twice a week or pray at a particular hour every day, merely in order to carry out your discipline, then you have missed the whole object of fasting and praying. There is no point in either of them, or in observing Lent, or in anything else that is meant to be an aid to the spiritual life, unless they bring us into a deeper relationship to God. I may stop smoking, I may stop drinking or gambling during these six weeks or at any other period, but if during that time my poverty of spirit is not greater, my sense of weakness is not deepened, my hunger and thirst after God and righteousness is not greatly increased, then I might just as well not have done it at all. Indeed, I would say it would be very much better for me if I had not done it. All this is the fatal danger of making these things ends in themselves. We can be guilty of the same thing with public worship. Public worship becomes an end in itself if my sole object in a pulpit is to preach a sermon and not to try to explain the blessed gospel of God that you and I and all of us may come to know and love him better. My preaching is vain, and it may be the thing that will damn my soul. These things are meant to be aids to help us and illustrations of the Word. God forbid that we should turn them into a religion. The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life.